Welcome to Loving the Snow Life, the podcast where our snow resort obsessed mums talk everything snow. You'll learn stuff including ski school, is it worth it, how to get the best travel deals, what snow gear to buy, sustainability and much more. Some mums love the Kardashians, our mums love ski documentaries. Between them, they've skied 84 snow resorts and they've dragged us to plenty of them. We're not complaining, we love it. Over to you, Mums. Welcome to episode five of Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. Hi, how you doing? And today we've got episode five, Snow Safety, all about safety in the snow. And we have a very special guest, Adam. Hello. And how are you? Good. And what's your job, Adam? Why are you here? Um, my job... Um, I run an avalanche safety training company, uh, so we do uh, avalanche safety and uh, backcountry safety training packages for the public. Um, we also teach some of the government agencies as well. So we've been running that business uh, based out of Jindabyne for the last, or since 2011, uh, but we also head off to the Northern Hemisphere in the summer and work over in a ski resort in the Himalayas. Uh, called Gulmarg. Uh, so we run the business in Australia and India. Oh, cool. Cool. And you love, you travel on split boards. Yeah. What are they? So a split board is uh, basically a snowboard that's cut down the centre from tip to tail. Um, so you ride it down the hill as a normal snowboard, but then when you get to the bottom and you need to walk back up the mountain in the backcountry, you pull it apart and it turns into a pair of touring skis. Um, so that's basically what they are. Makes perfect sense for your job. Yeah, so in the past, if you're a snowboarder and you wanted to ski in the backcountry, um, you basically had to don a pair of snowshoes and stick your board on your backpack and walk up, and it was uh, a bit cumbersome and annoying sometimes when it's windy, having a big board on your back. So the split boards um, came out in the late 80s in the US, and uh, I've been split boarding since 2000, so about 19 years now. What boots do you wear? I'm actually a bit of a, a strange snowboarder. I actually wear a pair of two buckle ski boots. Um, hard booter. I'm a hard booter, that's yes. right. So <laughs> I had a serious ankle injury about 10 years ago where I had to get a full ankle, ankle cartilage transplant oh. and didn't ski for a year. And so then I've been trying to keep my ankle workable for later life and uh, that led me to hard booting to get a bit more support around my ankle and haven't turned back. Yeah, good choice. We all want to ski into our 80s, don't we? That's right. That's <laughs> 90s, 100. 90s. Oh, you get free tickets then, don't you? Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the aim in life. So today, really, we're, we want to look at two issues. One is inbound skiing inside snow resorts. And then a bit later on, we want to ask you about skiing out of bounds outside snow resorts. So okay. we're just not sure if everyone knows some of the some of the terminology that you use for inbounds. And, and we're going to talk about the safety issues and the concerns of, um, I guess, your job and also um, you, you work closely with the resorts, I would imagine, on their safety issues as well throughout the resorts. Yeah, we or... train quite a few ski patrollers yeah. um, within the New South Wales and Victorian mm-hmm. ski fields. Um, and also when we're overseas in Kashmir, we, we train most of the ski patrol and all the local guides over there. So um, 
just making sure the guy, the, the patrollers inbounds understand the avalanche danger um, is a good thing to have. Yeah. What about the snow conditions in inbound ski resorts? I mean, they're mostly groomed these days, but sometimes the groomers can cause a bit of havoc themselves if they've groomed a bit uneven throughout the run, yeah. but then you might get groomed that leads to ungroomed or hard pack. What's, what's... Yeah, so typically ski resorts are built in terrain that is fun to ski um, and it's purely down to the slope angle. Um, so not many people want to ski on flat ski uh, ski fields. So the terrain where most ski resorts are built is in avalanche terrain, um, if hmm. technically, yeah. um, because that's what's the fun angle to ski on. Um, so the job of the ski resort is to make that inbound skiing safe for the public. Um, often they clear trees and um, the, the, the ski resorts in summer look like golf courses. So there's nice patches of open grass where the, the snow will fall and um, it's good fun to ski down those runs. The, the problem is, though, that by taking the trees and the anchors out of the terrain, uh, you're making it susceptible to avalanching. So... Um, it's a double-edged sword to have the good terrain to ski in. You're also opening yourself up to skiing in avalanche terrain. So um, the, the resort has to manage that risk, and they do so by um, pisting the, the runs with the, with the, um, the um, groomers, yep. um, by reducing the hazards. Um, in Australia, we're not allowed to bomb in the national park, so um, they have to ski cut or shovel the hazards away. Um, really? In other countries in the world, they will bomb inbounds in resort to get rid of the hazard with um, with the bombing regime, um, or they just shut the resort until the snowpack is safe to ski on. How often do they shut a resort in these days? Because money's money. That's right. They don't like to <laughs> shut the resort because then you know no one will come and ski and buy lift tickets. Yeah. Um, but it's a public safety thing. Obviously, yeah. they've got to weigh up whether they keep the resort open. Um, and risk people getting buried in avalanches or, mm. you know, close a resort for, for public safety and earn no revenue that day. Yeah. So there has been incidences in New Zealand where, you know, there was a massive storm early season and the ski resort decided to bomb the hazard and it took out a chairlift and a, and a workshop. But they <gasps> made that a, you? Uh, it was it? down in Mount Hutt, I think, oh, in, Hutt. in okay. New Zealand. And yeah, wow. they made the decision to bomb the resort to get it open to earn revenue. Uh, but in doing so, took out a chairlift in a groomer's hut. So mm, it's, a, a, it's a financial way up between revenue and safety. Mm. Uh, I'd rather safety wins. I think safety yeah. would, would win. Yeah. 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 yeah, right. So for, all, for in the snow conditions that there are, like there's groomed, non-groomed, icy, slushy, powder, wind, there's so many terminologies to describe snow. Um, what changes the snow conditions the fastest? Is it like new snow or rain? Yeah, or there's, wind? A, there's a there's a there's a multitude of factors. Um, in the avalanche world, we call it rapid change, um, and those factors are changes in temperature, uh, new snow or added weight to the snowpack, mm. which can come from rain, wind, or new snow. Um, obviously, sunlight uh, changes the snowpack surface. Um, but I would say the two major things in Australia that impact the snow would be wind and temperature. Um, obviously, wind binds snow loads three to five times more rapidly than natural flow. And just the daylight changes in temperature from morning to afternoon um, can have a huge effect on that surface uh, 
of the snow, whether it's soft or icy in the morning, and it normally softens up by 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock during the day. Yeah, there's massive changes in snow. And also in Australia, the, the elevation of the snow changes yes. quite a lot if you ski at Threadbow, I guess, because yeah. you know, it's such a... Well, every ski resort really, isn't it? The elevation yeah, so Australia uh, is quite lucky. We've probably only got three or 400 metres of vertical skiing in Australia. Um, and we typically find that for every 100 metres of altitude, we, we, we lose a degree of temperature. So okay. if the base at 1,700 is 3 degrees, then at 2,000 metres, we're looking at having 0 degrees at the top. So the conditions at the bottom will be different than the conditions at the top. And so people should adjust their skiing to that. <laughs> a lot of people don't, though, do they? And I yeah. guess that's why we've got ski patrollers on the ground <laughs> and, and they're doing their best. Mm. Are there any hidden risks? that we should know about inside snow resorts yeah, that the general public wouldn't perhaps think about? There's things like at the top of the mountains and in the ridges, we would call it wind scouring, where a lot of that new snow would be blown over to the prevailing wind conditions. We call that the lee slope. Um, so on the ridges, you're likely to find scoured icy conditions. And down in those sheltered areas or you know, commonly referred to as the powder stashes or the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the good places to go skiing off piste, uh, that snow has been loaded uh, more deeply and more rapidly. So typically that snow is not as safe to ski on. So staying away from those exposed ridges for the wind. Um, also in the afternoons, the sun will affect those peaks as well and the snow will melt and then at night it can freeze and we get this melt-freeze um, system coming in where... It's slushy in the afternoon, freezes at night, and it's rock hard in the morning. So being aware of those conditions inbounds uh, will just make your day more pleasurable to ski. Do you think the padding and the cushioning around the poles underneath the chairlift is adequate enough for people? Yeah, look, that's probably one of the major safety issues that they have within the ski resorts is people hitting trees or uh, chairlift towers. Um, it's quite a serious injury if that happens. Um, other than flagging off the areas as you approach the towers, but I think the uh, the cushioning on the towers, you know, it's often blue. Maybe they could change the colour to something a little bit more high vis, orange or, orange, orange, or yeah. yellow or red. Yeah, that's true. Um, when the visibility or people's goggles are fogged up, might reduce some of those hazards. But I think typically it's novice skiers and snowboarders that probably have lost a little bit of control are going too fast and you know slam into obstacles that yeah. other more experienced people would stay clear of and they cut across t-bar lines yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, lots of, that's lots of those incidents happen do do you think crowd management is done well by the resorts in on snow skiing down the hill and also in the lift lines because there's more australian skiing now yeah. Like, especially in school holidays, like down there now in the school holidays, it's you just look at the ski cams and you're like, wow, that's a 45-minute line. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the... For a two-minute uh, wait. <laughs> so, <laughs> for a two-minute ski down. So, a so. lot of the uh, major access points in the resort, like Front Valley at Perisher, would, uh, a lot of people get funneled through those initial lifts to get up and out into the mountains. Um you know, obviously the ski patrol, the majority of them are volunteers, so it's difficult to uh, have a lot of people on the mountain. Uh, that's a huge cost to the ski resort. So yeah. a lot of signage, um, making probably... There's a lot more awareness, I think, on the chairlift towers as you're going up now. There's little safety signs Messages. every tower that 
board within your ability and if you're not sure, take a lesson. Things like that are yeah. trying to uh, portray the safety values for the ski resort. And there's a code of conduct on the back of your lift ticket. But, you know, in all honesty, I don't think anyone would read that. No, they're on uh, the back of the toilet doors as mm. well. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, for females and for children. Just <laughs> the fact that I think people have a false sense of security that there are in a managed environment with ski patrol that they might entertain more risk go a bit faster knowing that someone will come and rescue them if they get into trouble yeah that's so, true yeah you know i guess their equipment to if they're on the wrong equipment if they're you know skis are too big or their helmet's not done up yeah they do a lot of people you do see a lot of that on the ski hill yeah. <laughs> i'm surprised there's no requirement for everyone on the hill to wear a helmet these days i mean it's a requirement to ride your bike on the road but to ski in a ski resort, there's no requirement for you to wear a helmet. So um, having the right gear is obviously a bonus. Um, even with our business, we get a lot of people that come into the backcountry that borrowed skis and boards off friends that, yeah. that the, the equipment doesn't suit their ability or their their choice of skiing or snowboarding. So uh, It is an expensive sport, so you find that people do borrow other people's equipment and then yeah. they've got their friends ski boots on and it's like oh wow you're gonna yeah. do an ankle in that you know yeah <laughs> or your feet are sore because yeah. you've got rental boots or yeah you so. know that's the only thing that was left in the shop so i hired it uh we hear that a lot oh really um, oh, so, so it's you know the backcountry gear is, is few and far between there's only a few shops that rent it out uh, it is quite expensive um, r- r- compared to resort equipment so uh, it's a big investment for the shops to yeah, can you hire it before you go out there, like it, like in it, three months in advance or two months in advance, or people? It's a spur of the moment decision. Yeah, like make. we run a backcountry festival that starts in August, and I always say to the people that are interested in coming as beginners that there's only one shop in Jindabyne that rents split boards, and to get in in February. Otherwise, I think they've only got five or six boards. If you don't get in, you'll miss out. Normally, hundred to two hundred people turn up for the event and if there's only five boards available for rent you know you've got to be in quick so a lot of the shops now have online booking yeah. you can rent your gear online pay in advance um, you get a discount so yeah, yeah finding those shops is the is the trick do you think there should be more family and beginner zones in inbound resorts um yeah that's a hard one because uh there are places like Front Valley and Friday Flats at the New South Wales resorts where the kids can go and play, the Milo Club and all that sort of stuff. Um, sometimes the parents throw the kids in there and go so they can have a bit of a, a day off and go skiing with their partners. Definitely, but we've all done that. I think yeah, some of the uh, some of the more uh, those those entry points to the resort, like the V8 at Front Valley, get really really congested and having beginners skiing in those slopes can be quite dangerous i know that's sometimes the only way we can get back to the car is to come down that front valley and i feel like they're always, sometimes a bit more dangerous though yeah, there is aren't they? Like you're your, gonna get hit in the back yeah. of the head by someone take it slow you <laughs> check in behind you all the time because you know that the people that are skiing those slopes are new and they're maybe not in control or you know that those people that have a little bit more confidence that aren't in full control that don't want to venture out into the broader ski resort so yeah um again it's all about how much risk you want to take and i always you know go very cautiously down those final runs because i know there's a lot more congestion at the bottom of the hill yeah it is true there's all the banners that say slow zones or they kind of give you (laughs) they corral you into 
that's it. There's got 20 people trying to get through a two-meter gap. Which is you? really scary to me. Do you yeah. find that, do you yeah. find that's not maybe the best approach to yeah. get people to slow down? Because I find that good skiers, especially teenage kids, they use them as uh, race skates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it's like the best option yeah. to slow people down. Those. Not, not only teenage skiers, maybe myself every now and then, but I won't admit that. No. <laughs> but I don't know about the those big mark slow zones. I just yeah, I mean they're there, there and there's normally a guy standing behind it with a ski patrol jacket on that yeah. is screaming at people. But yeah. how he can police three or four hundred people going past every ten seconds is, yeah. you know, it's all down to that. You know, it's amazing the amount of volunteer ski patrol that do that job for free. And yeah, um, they are amazing. Uh, you know, they're always looking for more. Um, it's just one of those things where there's a lot, you know, we can go up to 15,000 people on the hill in the middle of winter um, where the car parks are full and you're parking five, six kilometres down the road and walking to the lift. So yeah. it is becoming more affordable and easy to get into the ski uh, scene. Yeah. Um, it's not as elite a sport as it used to be, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, I don't think so either. It is. I mean, even though the lift prices are expensive, people are saving. It's their one... One. Amazing family holiday a year they've, yeah. they've mm. got. And we've so. seen a lot of tourists, you know, from other socio backgrounds, you know, um, going up to the ski resorts just to have a look. They don't look like they're dressed to go skiing. They're just there sightseeing, making snowmen and, and having a look at the snow that does snow in Australia, which a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you think those flights from, I mean, this is my theory, that the flight they've just got new flights from um, Shanghai to Canberra. Does that bring a lot of new tourists in, like, in that sector, or that's not really building yet. It's more. Yeah, I, I think it's the more, direct flights from Asia uh, to Canberra. Like, I think it's amazes more, me. Uh, people that have newly immigrated to Australia is a it's a destination to go in winter, like maybe the Blue Mountains, go to the ski resorts, yeah. go to the Gold Coast. It's something that's different. Um, it's from if they're from those Asian backgrounds, there's not a lot of snow in those countries. Yeah, that's um, true. And it's a bit of a novelty to go and run cities. around in the snow and make snowmen with the kids. So. Um, we're probably finding that a lot of the people that are doing that are going to Tube Town or just tobogganing on the side. They're not actually getting into the resort to do the skiing. They're just there for a bit of social. Is that why they um, banned the tobogganing? Uh, I don't think they. I think they banned tobogganing on the mountain, but they still have toboggan specific areas. Yeah, so you can still kind of... toboggan at Perisher and at Selwyn. Uh, I'm not okay. sure what the scene is at Threadbow, yeah. but it's only in specific places. And it and it's probably a safety issue. I mean, those toboggans, once they get going, there's no brakes and generally the people that are riding them have no experience. So you can <laughs> see some really good accidents on the hill. And what do you think of um, terrain parks? Do you think they're safe places at the moment? Um, the terrain park thing, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing for the ski resorts to try and manage um i suppose if there's going to be an accident it's going to go wrong in a big way um it's great to see though that the people in those areas are wearing all the protective gear um and you do see a lot of kids doing the rails and the little jumps and i was there on the weekend and there's um you can go and do courses where there's little kids going down and sliding on the rails with the ski instructor showing them how to do it so there's it's not like it's an unsupervised scene. Um, there's specific instructors that are now teaching young kids how to ski in the terrain park. So, yeah, which is a great addition. Um, it's probably a little bit different when you think about maybe a skate park at your local suburb. There's no one there teaching kids to skateboard in the half pipe. So, um, again, they're probably all wearing the safety equipment, but I suppose there's supervision in the ski field. 
Um, it is within the ski resort, so they've got a duty of care. I suppose terrain parks, our kids always get us when we're having lunch and we've had a drink or something and they say, after lunch, can we go to the terrain park? So you find yourself in your 40s in the terrain park <laughs> with a glass of wine under your belt. It's not the safest. Yeah, yeah we're the accidents waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't tend to let my board or skis leave the snow these days. I don't, can't afford to be broken. I can't work. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, it's just one of those things, again, that's, you know, it's it's another aspect to the sport. Um, yeah, it's probably yeah. aimed at the, the younger generations. Yeah. Um, and it's cool because it's on the Olympics now and it's on YouTube and Red Bull and you know, it's something everyone wants to do. Yeah, and it's good to see that the resorts are actually recognising it's coming in, so they are giving instructions. They are teaching people how to do it properly. Yeah. And they're paying big money for resort terrain park builders to come and build half pipes and terrain parks. There's specific um, guys that come out and build these parks within the resorts from all around the world. So it's big business to have, you know, it's always a bit of a threadbow versus perisher who's got the best pipe or who's got the best terrain park or the kickers and... Um, it's to, true. to get people to buy a season ticket at Threadbow or Perisher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's often decided on who the groomer is as to what ski pass you buy. Yeah. yeah. That's true, actually. Like, I, I'm, it's not for me, but I'm, my kids are 15 now, 15 and 12, and they're girls, but they, they're getting, they're like, oh, the normal hill's boring us now, Mum, so let's get into that. So Yeah, and they just sit there so, and they walk up and down the hill in the pipe. They don't buy a lift ticket anymore. They just sit there and ride the pipe. So, you know. There's a lot of guys that I used to live with that worked in the snowboard shop all day and would go and ski the pipe at night when it's wow. night. So mm-hmm. yeah. they only ski Tuesdays and Saturday nights because it was night skiing and they can ride the pipe all night. And no one's there. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's just another aspect to the sport that probably wasn't there 10 years, 15 years ago. Yeah. A lot of things changed in the 10, 15 years yeah. within inbound yeah. like snow resorts. There's... um. The safety number, the um, ski patrol numbers are on live tickets, aren't they, as well? All on, are they yeah. in? Uh, I don't know about in Australia, actually. Overseas they are. We had an accident yeah, this year. I'm not <laughs> sure how well publicised the communication is on the ticketing. Yeah. Um, but there's always a patroller at the top and the bottom of each run. So, uh, or, or operations from the ski resort there as a lift, lifty with a radio. So you're not far from getting help at any time if you're skiing within the boundaries of the ski resort. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, all in all, I think inbound snow resorts skiing is fairly safe. Would you? Would you? Yeah, I mean, I, statistically, I would say it's safer than driving to work in your car. Oh, there um, you go. I, I don't know. You've probably got more chance of dying driving to the snow than skiing. Yeah, um, I'm straight. Yeah, to especially the, the seven hours each way warriors. from Sydney with you know yeah. fifteen, twenty thousand extra people on those country roads and the kangaroos and wombats that you have to dodge in the middle of the night. So I would say that the sport itself is safer than trying to get to the sport um, mm. but there are risks in everything you do you know that's so, right um, you, you've got to uh, you've got to join society and take that risk every day when you walk out, walk out the front door so you never know what could could happen that's true I'd rather be driving to the snow that's right <laughs> than driving to work yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we look if we want to talk about outbounds now skiing and snowboarding out of bounds people possibly may not have heard of out of bounds or know what it is seeing you know if you you think of skiing and snowboarding as a sport the last 10 15 years it's just growing just proliferating everywhere overseas and we've found when we ski in japan we've you know we've gone to one ski resort and said oh this is great and then gone there 
potentially two years later and it's just booming with Aussies and everything, word of mouth getting out everywhere. And I've been in two really dangerous situations, one in Seki in Japan on the mainland when there was a beginner or I would say I would say an intermediate skier who was up with her friends following a group of skiers, more advanced group of skiers and she was completely they left her behind and she was really freaked out and we had to um get her down lots of sliding um and then another one <laughs> which I was involved in a um a crevasse accident in Ferrano with Tanil's husband, husband and a group of yeah. very advanced skiers Tanil's husband's a advanced um instructor and everything and we were literally doing a dam run at the back after lunch and the, trying to find my phone that I lost, and the and the <laughs> and the snow just slipped away, yeah. and so we're just finding that I, I get a sense when we go to Japan that oh my gosh, this is just cowboy land here. There is just everyone and anyone out here. They have no idea what they're doing. They're just going yeehaw. It's less all, and rules. we were actually inside country in the Ferrano incident. We weren't actually even in that country, so. Um, and, you know, we look up at it, we looked up back at the run now and we looked up and there was no trees in this area and that just screamed avalanche. <laughs> That's where an avalanche has previously gone through. Yeah. So, essentially, know, so essentially what is out of bounds, what is backcountry and what's sidecountry? Yeah, so there's a couple of terms that have been thrown around there, sidecountry, slack country, backcountry. Um, we classify the backcountry as anything outside of the resort boundary now the resort boundary is typically signposted quite well there's often uh, you heard the term ducking the rope so once you duck underneath that rope you are no longer within the ski resort boundary and therefore all those safety mechanisms we talked about in the first uh, scenario of skiing inbounds are no longer available to you so there's no more ski patrol there's no more terrain management there's no bombing um, and there's no peace maps and there's no safe way in or out if you have no training. So once you duck those ropes or walk past that resort boundary where it says, you know, you're leaving the resort area, you basically are now fending for yourself. So it's almost the same as swimming between the flags at the beach. Once you swim outside the flags, then swim at your own risk. Um, so within Australia, yeah. the two ski resorts, in New South Wales, Perisher and Threadbow are quite far spread apart and there's Charlotte's Pass in the middle. Um, they're small sections of the amount of snow that we can play with in Australia. So there's about 80 square kilometres of backcountry terrain uh, that gets skied quite regularly by Australians. Um, How many but, people do you reckon go out backcountry now, do you think? Well, when I started back in 1999, 2000, you might see one or two people a day in the backcountry now, you'd see 40 or 50. Wow. Um, it's getting a lot more popular. It's one of the big booming growth sectors in the ski industry. Um, a lot of the manufacturers are now making specific products for backcountry touring. Um, it's it's more affordable. There's a lot more of it. It's competitive. Uh, with, the, with the internet now, you can buy stuff from overseas at cheaper prices. Um, so it's, you know, it's opened up that sport really well. Um, the big concern that we have in Australia is that we, I often refer to Australia as a kindergarten sort of environment. It's fairly low risk. We don't have a lot of steep terrain. We don't have a big snowpack. 
Um, and a lot of people assume that when they go to Japan or Canada or France that the snowpack in Australia is the same as it is in Japan yeah. um, and not aware of the, the hazards. So by us doing the training in Australia, we make them aware that you know skiing in Australia is quite a safe environment. Um, but once you get on that plane and fly over to another country, you now need to seriously consider whether or not you've got the skills to be skiing in the backcountry versus in, in bounds in resort. I know when I did my avalanche training with you at um, Perisher, uh, it was very, very sobering. We turned up on the first morning and we can't wait to get this avalanche certification and then we're going we're gonna to go here, we're going to go there. And the first day you just shocked us with, on the, on the video scenario after scenario and it was very, very humbling I found. And the next day you taking us up the top and us doing that sort of cut out of everything. It was, I think we learnt so much but also I just felt like we, we, we know nothing. Yeah. We really know nothing. So the big problem with Australia is it's not an alpine country um, versus say living in the Alp, in the, in the uh, European Alps or in Canada or the US. A lot of the... Uh, those countries have um, whole industries around alpine safety, not only just for skiing, but for rail, roads, infrastructure, water, mining. Um, there's industries there that keep the public alive, just doing day-to-day activities like driving to work or catching a train to see your family in another state. In Australia, we don't really have that awareness of alpine danger. Um, I suppose that's really evident with the slide that happened at Threadbow. It was sort of something that no one ever expected to happen, that someone could, you know, be injured from a a landslide within a ski resort area. Um, So that awareness, that public awareness of alpine safety is not something that Australians were probably more likely to be aware of the beach culture than the snow culture. So swimming between the flags and sun cream and... You know, learning to surf. Whereas, if you lived in Canada or something, you'd be all over learning to ski as a kid and yeah. shoveling so, the yeah, driveways so and true. using snow tires and things like that. To Australia, mm-hmm. that's foreign. So, it's like um, she'll be right, mate, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah, and we're like, Australian. You know, we're tough Aussies. You know, we all watch YouTube and watch the videos that get uploaded on Facebook and think that, you know, if the big athletes can do it, Tora Brights and Sean Whites and Jeremy Jameses can backflip off things and ski these big mountains in Alaska then surely an Australian can have a go at that you know yeah. we're, we're a proud country but you know the reality is that there's years of training there's lots of support services that we don't see behind the scenes in these films and you know just to think you can jump on a plane and fly to Japan or or the US and ski these big backcountry runs is really you know it's not it's not something that's done regularly by the mainstream public. It's almost like the Australians are doing that though. They are they are yeah. almost buying a lift ticket and an airline airline ticket to mm. and checking in their brain. You know, they yeah. exchange their brain for the for the for the, yeah. for the flight. Overseas. And it's easy now. And you can book a holiday online and be skiing in Huckaburra in twelve hours and jump duck the and ropes. side country or mm. you yeah. know or to side get country. Into trouble. I yeah. want to definitely make sure our kids, as they get to a certain age and they're getting to that stage where they want to go to Japan with their mates, they've got to do the avalanche course yeah. at the very least the avalanche one because I want them to be sobered up and I want them to know that they know nothing because the people out there, it's just yeah crazy yeah well i mean with my husband's incident this last what was it two years ago i guess that was a absolute eye-opener for all of us he we were just skiing inbound he turned and he fell down a crevasse <laughs> and it was like yeah. wow he actually stopped 
you know, and it was like, whoa, and it was really sobering for us. I wasn't there, thank goodness, because I don't think I would have helped the situation. So I think that in itself you could, you should go, even if you're not going to ski out of bounds or if not, it can happen inbounds and you should learn it anyway. It's a yeah, different. I mean, there's there's avalanches inbounds. It does happen. It happened in Threadbow a few years ago yeah. where a guy was buried for over an hour. He survived, luckily. Um, there's been incidences in ski resorts in Canada where they've done hazard control in the mornings while people are skiing the lower half of the mountain and they've accidentally buried people just skiing in the resort. Yeah. None of them will be wearing beacons or avalanche gear. Uh, and it's literally, you know, needle in a haystack trying to find those. How many people, you would never know how many people were skiing that run when it happened. Um, you hear kids in the radio in the Swiss Alps getting buried, army people getting buried in the Alps. You know, it does happen. It's not, it's not frequent, but it, you know, almost once a year you hear about these, you know, chalets getting buried by avalanches in the Alps and they live off cheese and wine for three days, you know, before yes, they get hung out. So it does happen. Well, um, t- typically not in Australia, though. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I noticed about our accident in Ferrano because we are all on in different areas of the slope and we all just froze where we were so we didn't cause any future slips. And somebody, we were just chatting as we were trying to get Darren out of the hole. I wasn't, but I was. And they, someone said to me, you've done your avalanche course, haven't you? And I said, yes, and I'm an idiot because I'm standing here with no equipment. I don't have a probe. I don't have a beacon. We don't, we haven't, you know, nothing. And that was the biggest thing. It's you can still have a bit of training and still be, do something silly. Yeah, I mean, it's all about that desensitising to the risk. But I, I say to my students that, you know, you've bought your beacon, your shovel and your probe and you spent probably nearly $1,000 doing that. Um, you know, it doesn't cost you anything to run it for the day. It doesn't require any resources. So why not just stick it in your backpack and wear it when you're skiing in places like Revelstoke or Kicking Horse or even the big mountains of Whistler? Um Put your beacon on because you're going to be the first guy that gets found by ski for trial if there's an inbounds incident. Um, yeah. And yeah. also, if there is an incident, you can take your gear, use your gear and help ski for trial. Maybe dig a guy out that you know you're just an extra a shoveler or an extra prober for them to maybe save an extra life. Yeah. What's the biggest thing uh, cause of an avalanche? Would you say? I know so, that's a big question. Yeah. So typically, <laughs> people people cause the avalanches they're caught in. Um, it's very unlikely that you get caught by a natural slide. Um, and the big thing we're finding now is this thing called backcountry etiquette where you might have touched on it earlier, where you might be skiing, doing all the right things, using all your safe travel practices, you've done all your training, and then someone three or 400 metres upslope of you skis in, unaware of the danger, triggers a slide and buries you without you knowing, without you doing anything wrong. Um, and they might ski away and not even realise you're down in the valley. Um, so this is happening more and more as, as, as more and more people are skiing in the backcountry. And um, we're starting to teach a little bit more about this backcountry etiquette. So it's spacing out, you know, not stopping in the middle of runs, not stopping in places where the avalanche will engulf you, um, stopping in your safe spots, and just being aware of people around you and how they can impact your day and also how you can impact other people's by doing something wrong. So the etiquette in the backcountry is now starting to become a large discussion topic. Um, There's not a lot of data on it at the moment. It's starting to become something that we're starting to teach in the courses. Um, And I think it'll become more and more common. The more people that are out there without any education, 
these are the people that scare me because they don't understand the risks of not only to themselves but how they're risking other people's lives by doing something that, that they don't understand. I find it's to the oh sorry. Um, I find it's to the point where I don't really like to go somewhere with somebody out of bounds or side country without if I don't want to ski with you if you're not if you haven't got an avalanche training. Yeah, so a lot of the lot of the Facebook pages now have uh, got these you know Australian backcountry where you can become a member and there's a lot of people that post things on there saying I've got no partner I'm interested in going touring on the weekend is anyone happy for me to tag along and it's great to see now the Australian people are a lot of the first questions I ask is have you done avalanche training do you have the avalanche safety gear and you know the reality of avalanches in Australia is low um, but it's great that the Australian public is now adopting this I'm pretty much only interested in going skiing with you if you've done some sort of safety training and you've got the equipment, not only to rescue me if I get buried, but I can rescue you if you get buried. So yeah. um, it's starting to become that that's the first question that people get asked. I think it's not only avalanches in Australia and the out of bounds, it's the weather. The weather it comes is, in so fast. Yeah. And if, I mean, if you've got your probe, if you've got your shovel, then those things will help when the weather comes in as well, would you yeah, say? Yeah, so a it? shovel and a probe isn't just for use it for avalanche yeah. digging people out. You can use your probe to measure the snowpack depth. Um, you can use your shovel to dig a hole, to make water. Um, you can use it as a rescue splint, as a rescue sled. So, you know, not always are you going to have the classic scenario of someone getting caught in an avalanche. You could, you know dislocate your shoulder or your knee and you need to make a little rescue sled you can pull your poles and your shovel and your probe apart and if you've got a tarp and a probe you can make an emergency shelter for the night if you know something was to happen so those pieces of equipment only you know are there to help you assist in an avalanche scenario but they're also there for you know kids building booters with shovels and yeah, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, because they're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's good that you know the products are in the shops now. A lot of the shops that sell the backcountry touring gear, they're all selling shovels, probes, and beacons. Whereas ten years ago, you know, there's probably only one or two shops in Australia you could buy a probe or a shovel from. Um, so it's becoming more and more popular. The shops are seeing that people are requesting or buying this stuff and they're stocking it in the shops now. Yeah, I think if we can educate the, the Australians in Australia, that's a really good thing for when they go overseas. Yeah. So we, 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 we sort of use that analogy, that, that kindergarten. It's an easy place to learn. Avalanche safety in Australia, we don't have the big mountains that are there scaring you while you're learning. There's not that thought in the back of your mind that you're standing in these huge big valleys with these huge steep mountains with big snowpack. Um, you can relax, you can take your time, you can feel secure, do your basic level training, level one. And then if you feel like you want to go and learn more, you can go over to Canada or Japan or you know the European resorts and do your level two training in, a, in an area where the mountains are a bit steeper, the terrain's a bit more challenging um, and you know forces you to make those decisions and do that learning in a, in a, in a higher risk area. Um, but, you know... Learning the basics in Australia, like uh, Emma said, is it makes you aware of what you don't understand and and it almost gives you a reality check to say, well, I'm glad I did that because now I understand I did know nothing and now I know a little bit and there's probably that, that, that step that will send you over to do more and more training and get your skill level higher. Yeah, definitely. How does avalanche control work? So avalanche control, well, it's interesting. Like I said, in Australia, we, we, we don't bomb within the national park. It's just, it's, it's not allowed. Um, so there's no avalanche control work done outside the ski resorts. 
um, as a director of the Mountain Sport Collective, which is the Australian Avalanche Advisory website. We're a non-for-profit. Um, we publish Avalanche Danger on the website. Um, so it'll give you the condition report for the areas where most people go skiing in the backcountry. But for avalanche control in, within Australia, we, we typically see that the ski patrollers are either ski cutting the face of the mountains, which is basically skiing across the slope, trying to get the hazard to fall downhill. Um, they either dig the hazard out or they'll just close the run until it's safe to ski on. In countries around the world where they do use explosives, they will, they'll either bomb it from a helicopter or from inbounds. Um, and in some places around the world, they actually have installed infrastructure where they remotely detonate explosives from a control room to clear the hazards on highways and um, major access routes in and out of certain states in Canada and the state US. The yeah, Rogers Pass, Rogers Pass, you yeah. know, Kootenay Pass, places like that. They have, you know, gas bottles with explosives mounted up in the mountains where they'll they know exactly when they need to blast. You know, the government will shut the road for a couple of hours. They'll get all the hazard to come down the mountain. They'll get the tow trucks out and bulldozers and bulldoze it all away and open the highway again in two hours. So yeah. it's a complete industry and a science over there that we don't have in Australia. It's not necessarily needed here, though. That is no, we don't, have so, those. Yeah, we don't have We don't have that risk. We don't have 10 metres of snow. No. Uh, if only... If <laughs> what have we got? Ten centimeters at the it'd moment. Be a good, it'd be a good problem to have. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> That's right. What What do you see in your professional opinion of where are the dangerous snow resorts uh, within Australia? No. No. Overseas. Look, Japan, you know, is um, is is heavily tra- travelled to by Australians. Um, they have a massive snowpack over there. Um, they get a lot of snow. It snows a lot quickly. So you're getting metres of snow a day in some instances. Um, the saving grace, I suppose, for Japan, in the majority of Japan, is they don't have large mountains. Um, there's not a lot of 4,000 metre peaks there. There's some big terrain around the Hakuba region. Um, so the big, the big problems in those sorts of places are people going into these valleys where the snow is really deep. It's difficult to walk in. It can sometimes take hours to walk 15, 20 metres up back onto the ridge again from going down into these little these little valleys. Um, big, The big places where you, you're likely to find dangerous snow are, you know, the big resorts in Canada um, where they might just have one or two chairlifts and it's sort of classified as a backcountry resort, so it's lifted backcountry. Kicking um, horse. Kicking horse, you know, Revy, Rogers Pass, Revy, yeah. those sorts of areas. Yeah. Um, obviously in the Alps, in Europe, yeah. you know, they they can get, you know, weather where sometimes it's a good season early, it's a good season later in the year, and you know they get big big mountains, you know, with big snowpacks. Um, places like where I go to work in the Himalayas, um, there'd be times where the ski resorts shut for four or five days because they can't do hazard control because it's snowing too much, and we're talking two thousand metres of vertical on each ski run. So there's a lot of terrain to manage over in that place. It's the yeah, same. It's one gondola that accesses the backcountry, so it's a lifted backcountry access resort. They only manage one bowl out of probably 20. So once you leave that controlled bowl, which they manage, then you're, you're you know, you ski at your own risk. So knowing, having education, understanding the risks, skiing with people that are a similar skill set that you trust, 
it's a trust thing. Trust, yeah. uh, you got to be relying on that person to dig you out if you get caught in an avalanche, do the right thing. Um, these are the things that people travelling overseas need to be aware of. So if you are travelling over there to Japan and to, say, um, um, and anywhere in the world, you probably go, it's more than likely you should go with a travel agent. Isn't it? Like you should go with a Ski Japan or, or, sorry, not. there's a lot of white room talk. There's a lot that go over there, but just have local guides within the area. Yeah, so it's a so, good idea to go. And like what we teach is, we, you know, everything we teach is start, start simple and work your way up to something more advanced. Yeah. Um, you can take that on board when you, you know, you get on a plane and fly to Canada the first time and go into central British Columbia and, you know, you might for the first couple of days go out with a guide. They'll show you the area. They'll show you the safe places to ski and then you might go ski with your friends yeah. without a guide. But, you know, every place I go that I've never been to before, I'll always engage a guide to take me out for a couple of days get their knowledge, get them to tell me how their snowpack works throughout the, the year and where's good places to ski, where's the bad places to ski. You know, if we go down here, is there a way to catch a taxi back to the resort or do you go walk yeah. for three hours? This, all that local knowledge is invaluable. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, going on guided ski holidays um, to Japan where they take you to a different resort every day and they've got hosts and... You know, you get to ski with the same people every day, so you get to used to their experience, you get used to the guides. Um, it's just setting up that foundation for safety. Yeah, yeah. We, we definitely use guides every time we go overseas because, you know, I've found myself hiking out of one of those gullies yeah, for 15 hours. minutes. And, yeah. I, and, and, you know, and I'm not that tall, so yeah. <laughs> sometimes the snow is up over my waist you know yeah, it's like walking oh in quicksand. my gosh yeah it is yeah. like walking in quicksand and that is not fun so that's yeah. so when you when you're going and you're choosing a holiday destination again you've found it what do you recommend do you, what websites do you look at when you go into those areas do you just so i would go to the you know the internet and just google you know skiing in revelstoke or skiing in chamonix or yeah you know if you're going to somewhere exotic you know um, there's normally not a lot of information like if you were going to ski in Georgia or you know, Kamchatka in Russia or somewhere in South America in Chile you know you're not going to get that amount of information for those local ski areas but you'll typically find that there's a travel company that will be going to these destinations yeah. um, have a look at their guides page who who guides there are they local people are they foreigners coming from the US or France or Canada um, look at their qualifications you know <clears throat> The, the ski guide industry is, you know, like you said before, it can be a bit cowboyish. Mm. Um, I sort of judge it on how much you pay per day is the experience of your guide. So if you're paying $100 a day for a guide, you're getting probably someone who has very little training. Whereas Get what you pay for. Five or six hundred dollars <laughs> yeah. a day for a guide. You're probably mm. getting a guy from France that's been doing this for 20, 30 years. Mm. And you're going to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there are some, chance. some countries it's... in the world where being an alpine guide is a requirement. And if you, you're not a guide and you've been caught guiding, it's a criminal offence. Oh, really? Um, okay. But there's other countries in the world where, you know, your prerequisite to become a guide is to do your level one recreational certificate. You know, so I'd be asking to see their qualifications, yeah, um, where they've worked, ask them some questions, just some generic questions about the snowpack throughout the year, where the safe runs, what are the safe aspects, and if they can't answer those questions, then I'd probably go and look for another guiding company. Yeah. Um, so do your due diligence and ask the questions. You don't need to be a snow professional, just some basic questions about safety and qualifications, and you'll generally get the idea of 
whether they're a reputable tour guide guide company or they're just you know people that are new to it and Mm. You know, hope you don't ask too many questions. Because at the end of the day, they're the guys that are going to be digging you out. They're the guys. <laughs> well, they're going to you got trust. The don't that, buy them a beer at lunch. Yeah, that's it. they're the guys that are keeping you alive. Yeah, you that's know? true. That's true. Um, just on your own, without a guide, without going so far, if you're just kind of because the side gates in Japan or the side gates in Canada, it's like you're. Um, how would you scope out a line for yourself if you if you've just gone through the side gate at Revy and you've gone into the North Pole? Yeah. Like, okay, where am I going to go? Well, yeah, so maybe um, ask your mates, guys at the pub the night before, have a look on Google Earth and oh, what the Google terrain Earth. looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, ski, see if there's ski lines there. You know, skiing down a run just because someone else has skied there isn't always the best risk tool because you know, the person that you're following could be just like you, never skied there before and just hope there's a way out of the bottom. I have done that in Italy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. I'm joking. We ended up going hiking across waterfalls. Through, like, Follow Darren. There's no tracks down there. That's fresh. Yeah. Fresh for a reason. That's right. So, <laughs> you know, you've then got to decide whether or not you want to ski down that run, knowing there could be cliffs or, you know, hazards at the bottom. Yeah. Um and it's a big risk, you know. It's a big decision to make. It is. Um, well, that girl in Whistler this year walked over to have a look yeah. at the cliffs that have been out of bounds for years and years and years. Mm. Yeah. And that is a really sad situation. Well, I mean, I noticed with our kids that, you know, they're only young. They're te- my boys are 10 and 12, but when they get to the age, maybe they'll be 20 or 22, and they say they want to go to Japan with their mates, they've got to do a avalanche yeah. basic training. They have to. Like, they we get them to do the... Get the car license, boat license. Yeah, they do nippers. They got the bronze medallion. They got yeah. the St John's first aid certificate. So for me, like minimums for the backcountry would be: you have all your avalanche gear, do some formal avalanche training, understand first aid, CPR, and basic first aid, um, and be really, you know, honest about your ability. You know, we we all think we're Superman, but at the end of the day, if you know you've broken your leg and you've got to crawl out of a a valley for five or six hours is that something you want to do on your mm. holiday you've saved all year for or just ski resort with your mates and have fun what programs do you have so we run uh, we run avalanche safety training level one and for the first time we've run level two in australia this year um, we also run wilderness first aid training which is a 80 hour international certification uh, we do ski mountaineering training um and we do introductory days, just basic backcountry introductory days. Um, we also do snow camping training. So we teach you how to snow camp, um, how to make water, how to set up your base camp, what's the equipment you need to stay out two or three days in the backcountry. What's the youngest you can, how old can you be for those courses? How old? Um, 13 is where we'd like to have. Um, you're going to be busy that's work starting now (laughs) so anything under under 18 we'd probably prefer the parents to be on the course with the kids Um, we we will train students down to 15 in avalanche training Uh, we do our youth program through um, our business where we train uh, school kids from kindergarten to year 12 we don't charge that it's a free service we offer the community. Awesome. Um, so we offer all the local Jindabyne school kids, um, anywhere from kindergarten to year 12, there's a youth program that we run through Avalanche Canada. 
Um, we also offer free training to kids that are not looking to go and become lawyers and doctors and engineers that want to go and do gap seasons and ski, be ski patrollers or ski instructors. We offer them um, free training so that they can get their avalanche certificate, so they can go off and become an international ski instructor. So they can also you also need to be a heli be a heli guide, don't you? As well, is it? Yeah, oh, to become a heli guide, you need a lot of training. A yeah. lot of training, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah. we, you know, for that school program, we don't charge for that. It's a free service that we offer to the community, and um, we often get five or six students from the Jindabyne area that are going off to be patrollers in Canada or in in Japan the following year. That you know, uh, to get your international um, APSI you've got to be level one instructor and also have your avalanche yeah. minimum of avalanche level one to become an international sounds instructor. awesome doesn't it? it sounds better than kids sitting around on their screens yeah definitely definitely yeah, I wish I didn't know about highly encouraged yeah. yeah so would you Amazing. do private would you do families would you do like you we say, do three, group three groups that, yeah, yeah group bookings so we do yeah. group bookings yeah. we do industry bookings so we do um, bookings Corporate. for people that work on weekends, so we do midweek courses for, you know, chefs and waiters and, you know, people that run chalets. Um, Everyone needs to know it because it can happen in a chalet, yeah. that's Redbow as you keep yeah. as an example. So. so we do all the yeah. government agencies, we do the police, we do search and rescue, we do SES, we do bushfire. Um, so we teach government agencies, we do some Olympic work for Olympic athletes. Um, so yeah, we, we do a lot of the university mountaineering clubs as well. So, you know, not specifically skiers or snowboarders, but people that do ice climbing and ski mat and just general glacial travel or climbing in the glacial areas. We we also train a lot of those university clubs on alpine safety as well. Anything to do with the snow life? Anything that relates <laughs> to climbing or yeah. skiing in the backcountry where there's ice or snow, then we offer training packages, yeah. So we'll definitely put all your information on our website Yep. Um, and have links to all your um, courses yep. that, we, that people can go to. Um, we would, I'll definitely be signing up because yep. <laughs> I haven't done an avalanche course myself. Yeah, and and we, to say, I do need to because my husband nearly died and, well, yeah, yeah he, he, did. He, he did. He did. He was way down in that hole. He was and we also offer um, women-specific training as well. There, We found that some um, women don't tend to learn too well when there's men in the room. We tend to go, oh, you do the axe or you do the, something, yeah. you know, the so heavy we, stuff. We like, actually, not um, me, but... We leave I mean, all the brain work to the women, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, statistically... That's a great idea, though. Yeah, yeah. Not, you're 90% more likely to come home from the backcountry trip if there's a lady in your group. That is so true. And yeah. when I'm the nag at the back of a bunch of men, which I often am, I always <laughs> say that you want me on your gr- in your That's group because right. I'm the one saying don't go down there. Yeah, it yeah. is true. Yeah, I need to be a little bit more that way. Yeah, so we, we, <laughs> offer, we offer women-specific training. In, uh, so it's just courses where ladies only, so that they don't feel that they, they, they can participate and not feel like they're going to get, um, you know, they're going to have any adverse effects from the other people in the room. And yeah. luckily this year we've managed to um, get a good friend of Snow Safety Australia, a lady called Michaela davis Meehan, who's qualified as in the World Freeride Tour this year. She's one of the six best snowboarders in the world. She's going to host the event for us in New South Wales. So Amazing. Well, give um, us those dates and yeah. we'll put them online for you and we'll get it on, yeah. on everywhere. We couldn't you, get so. Tora Bright, but... You she's know. threadbow. She's got to be yeah. <laughs> attached so, to that. Now. She's a bit busy too. With yeah, the, yeah, the I would say she would be. Yeah. Um, I guess, okay, so finishing up, where's your favourite place to ski? Or, oh, my, sorry, snowboard. Um, Splitboard. Split yeah, I mean, I ski as well. 
but I'm not as good at skiing as I am snow, snowboarding. But look, my favourite place in the world to ski is Kashmir. Um, it's just one of those places which really is not on the radar with most people. It's massive terrain. It's starting it's, to be. It's really big mountains. It's three or four runs a day max. Um, and great snow, interesting culture. But look, Japan for powder, I don't think you can go wrong with that, with North Island of Japan for powder skiing. Um, just the mountains need to be a bit bigger. That's true. But Kashmir and, uh, and Japan probably have some really good skiing. Um, and Canada, you know, Canada is Canada. It's it's epic. So um, <laughs> they'd be the three places. There's some countries that I want to go to. I want to spend some more time in South America. Um, we like to spend some more time in the Eastern European mountains. Um, but, yeah, there's there's so many places to travel skiing now. Um, you know, don't just go to Nisiko or Whistler. You know, there's plenty of plenty of other places to go skiing around the world. Mm, yeah, Agreed. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for today. No worries. That was awesome. I learned so much. Hope yeah. you all did too. Bye. Bye. Adam is the owner of Snow Safety Australia and is the Snow Safety Officer for DI5 Adventures in Kashmir. He's also the Director of the Mountain Sports Collective and the Avalanche Forecaster for the Mountain Sports Collective. He has training and certification in avalanche safety and wilderness first aid and has been delivering avalanche training since 2004. For information on training and programs, please go to snowsafety.com.au or the mountainsportscollective.org. Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.